0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble.
1: Barnes & Noble Union Square, please give a warm welcome to number one New York Times bestselling author Rebecca Kwong and Barnes & Noble's Miwa Messer.
0: Hello again. It's very nice to see all of you guys. This is really exciting. So, a couple of things, just a reminder, we're taping for Poured Over, okay, so video, audio, all of that good stuff. If you gave us a question, guess what I have in my hand? I'm also not that person that holds questions until the end, I like to work them in as we go. So, just know that this is maybe not the kind of book event you've always been to. And granted, I am holding a very big research document in my hand, because I'm a fan, but we are gonna get everything in, I promise you, okay? I'm just telling you now. I'm Miwa Messer, I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Rebecca Kwong is one of my favorite, favorite people on the planet. And I get to hang out with her and you for this live taping of the show. Live from Barnes & Noble Union Square, thank you guys, as always, for letting me take over the store. So, the nebula is now yours for battle. <laughs> And some of you guys might remember that Babel was also Barnes & Noble's Speculative Book of the Year last year, Speculative Fiction Book of the Year. And I'm going to take a minute and remind those of you who might not know this that actually The Poppy War was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick when I was running the program a really long time ago. So, I think it's safe to say that we've thought pretty highly of Rebecca for quite a while. So we're delighted you guys are along for the ride with us. But you know, Yellow Face, it's your shortest novel, has the smallest cast. I think for some folks it might be slightly unexpected what happens in this book. Not all of us, but some of us. And the LA Times calls it a quantum leap straight into the zeitgeist, which I thought was kind of fun. But I want to talk about where this book came from, because I happen to have been waiting for this book for quite some time. You may not have known that, but maybe I've been waiting for it for a minute. So you want to tell folks what it's about?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to say I'm so happy to be back at this store with all of you. And I'm really excited to be chatting with you again, Miwa, because the last time we taped this podcast for Babel Babel, I was in Venice where I managed to catch COVID and I was delirious and taking meetings from this hot stuffy little Airbnb and I had no idea what I was saying and I remember several times I tripped up and was like, I don't know where I'm going, can I repeat that answer? And now we're live and I can't do that, but fortunately I'm lucid today and I don't have COVID.
0: You know, we can fix a lot of things in edits.
1: Hopefully we won't have to because I, I yeah. can hold a thought for longer than <laughs> 10 seconds this time. But Yellowface, if there's anybody here who doesn't know what it's about, is my ridiculous, absurdist satire about the publishing industry. And now, so something I'm about to say happens in the first chapter, so it's not a spoiler, but it's about two writers, frenemies, they're not quite best friends, they're not quite rivals either. One is named June, she's white, and the other is called Athena. She is Chinese American. And one night, June and Athena are hanging out, and Athena dies in a freak pancake eating contest by choking. And that really sets the tone for the rest of the novel. It's full of absurdist things like eating a pandan pancake and having it lodged in your throat and then you can't breathe anymore and, and you die. And Athena's always been a bit more successful than June. June's writing career hasn't really taken off. She's quite resentful and frustrated because of this, so she steals Athena's unpublished manuscript about Chinese laborers on the front during World War I and submits it under her own name, and after it comes out, passes herself off as vaguely ethnic, maybe Chinese American. We don't really know, but you're racist for asking. And so it's obviously about a whole host of issues, cultural appropriation, diversity, you know, questions of representation in various creative industries, but it is at its heart just this psychological thriller about a very complicated and toxic relationship between two writers. Is anybody here a writer? Yeah, so quite a good number of you, and something I've been thinking a lot over the past few years is how isolating a writing career can be and what happens when you lose touch with the community and also what happens when all of your interactions with other creative peers are mostly mediated through the internet where your perceptions of others, your jealousies, your paranoias are exaggerated by the way that we talk on Twitter now. So that's Yellowface in a nutshell. And people keep asking me, where did you get the idea? And I like to respond by being annoying and saying, it was like Athena springing out of the skull of Zeus fully formed, it dropped into my head all at once. And this is partially true. So with all of my other novels, it's taken a long time to percolate and put together different characters and ideas and, and research around themes before I can stitch the plot together. But With Yellow Face, I've had people tell me that it, it reads like a novel that was fun to write and that I wrote in one breath because, and that's true, and it's because it really did come to me all at once, the beginning, the ending, several crucial lines of dialogue in the middle. And because it came to me in early 2021, a, that explains why it's my gremlin mode pandemic novel. And you can always tell when something is somebody's pandemic novel. First, because it comes out in late 22 or early 23. And second, because there's this unhinged demonic quality about it that really tells you the author was, was alone and frustrated in a really bad place when they wrote that book. And that was me for Yellow Face. But I find this kind of response irritating because it's not like stories just come out of nowhere and the muses sing to us. Although I did say on one interview, when God calls, you answer. And I felt very proud and artsy of myself and then immediately backtracked because it was so obnoxious. Um, but, you know, looking back, it's quite obvious what questions were percolating in my head to generate this plot. And it's all the conversations in publishing in starting in late 2020. So what happened in the U.S. in late 2020 was first George Floyd was murdered, and there were protests all over the country. And what started as conversations specifically about police brutality and anti-blackness then morphed into broader conversations about representation and diversity across all sorts of industries. And you know, several months after that, publishing started having its own watershed moment of of asking whose voices are being uplifted, in what ways is the industry treating its writers that are already on its lists, who's not getting through the door, who's not getting opportunities. And I remember at the time, there were all these initiatives being announced, all these promises being made. You know, you had people, editors going on Twitter and saying, black writers, submit to me, my DMs are open. You had all these agents committing to diversifying their lists and, As early as as 2021, it was obvious that a lot of this was very performative, that it was language used to keep up with the moment, to seem responsive, to seem responsible and, and sympathetic. And, you know, a lot of that support vanished. And I've become increasingly cynical about the industry's ability to change itself and how it deals with representation and marginalization and i think those frustrations are what generated yellowface
0: okay but i want to start with permission cuz you and i agree it is a gross word and a gross concept right permission who gives you permission do you give yourself permission to write a story like this i mean your longtime publisher did put this book out in the world it's not like you had to suddenly go wholesale indie right like you're not putting this out. Someone someone did say, okay, you might have something here. So let's talk about that permission for a second, because I like gremlin mode. I think it's a very funny phrase, but I think too, we need to sit down and think about this in all seriousness, right? Like this is stuff, you grew up Asian American in the United States. You know this stuff has been sort of in the back of your brain for a really long time. So let's start with When did you know you really had to do that? Because I think it predates 2020.
1: Well, I'll talk about permission in two ways. Mm -hmm. And first I'll talk about exactly why I pushed so hard for this book and how it finally got out there, because it very nearly was never even submitted or put on the market. Mm -hmm. It it was very close to not even making it to an editor. So my agent is this nice white lady. I love her very much, Um, and she's still my agent, so this story has a happy ending. But... I've previously written epic fantasy novels about largely protagonists of color, so when I sent her this deranged email with just the headline, in your own words dot dot dot, and that was the title of the manuscript at the time because I'm very bad at coming up with my own titles, I sent her the first 100 pages and the only warning I gave her was, it's kind of weird, it's different from what I've done, I really like it, I think it's fun. What do you think? Do you think this is something that we can put out on the market? And she responded with, can we talk on the phone? And I'm of a generation where if somebody wants to talk to you on a phone, it means that like your grandma has died. Like otherwise I'm not picking up. So I was like, okay, it's bad news, but let's see what she has to say. And she had some very legitimate concerns. Her first one was the obvious concern of burning bridges. She was like, you know it, this novel is so on the nose it's so very clearly about your experiences at Harper Collins and it's not hard to tell who you're talking about and i'm worried that it's going to offend some of the people that you'll need to work with if you want to have a long career in this industry and and she was also uncomfortable about the move to literary fiction and she doesn't represent a lot of literary fiction so there was all these good reasons why it didn't make sense as a next career move but I think at that point I was just so exhausted. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's early 2021, mm-hmm. so I'm just fed up with a lot of things. And I, I insisted and I asked her to please get second reads from other people at the agency who do represent literary fiction, just mm-hmm. so we know if this project is dead in the water. And it turned out her assistant really loved it. And Liza Dawson, who's the head of the agency, really loved it and thought it could work. So she really put her neck on the line for me. And she stood up for mm-hmm. me, even though she didn't believe in the project. And we were pleasantly surprised when Harper Collins decided to take it on. And so I didn't know, actually, how much internal trouble this manuscript stirred <laughs> when it reached the offices. I only found out when I read this very nice profile of me that was published recently and They'd interviewed my editor, May, for like 40 minutes and talked about all sorts of things. But the one line they printed from her was, does she even like us? Um, So that's how they were talking about it at Harper. But it's been a wonderful process working with them on this book, actually, because I think everybody just really leaned into demon time. and, And that's been so fun. So... I insisted that I get permission to publish the novel, and now it's out there in front of you. And and we're all having so much fun with it. But the second thing that comes to mind when you talk about permission is Mm -hmm. who gets to write what. And the obvious question about this novel is, what do you think about cultural appropriation? Mm -hmm. Who do you think gets to write about what sorts of characters? And a question that gets asked at every single event I do and every interview I do is, is do you think that white authors should not write about people of color? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the absurd follow-up is, well, you're a woman of color, and the protagonist of Yellow Face is a right woman. Is that cultural appropriation? Mm-hmm. Which is hilarious to me, because it just points out the absurdity of framing this as a matter of permissions and rights and staying mm-hmm. in your own lane. And I think after a lot of of scandals and controversy over several novels that perhaps should not have made their way out into the world. There's been a lot of floating dialogue about staying in your own lane, writing things that are authentic, true to your experience, and avoiding cultural appropriation. And I mean, I I get where all of this is coming from. It's coming from a place of, well, first, just exhaustion with seeing yourself badly represented, seeing stereotypes replicated in ways that are not critical or or don't even attempt to subvert harmful perceptions of various groups. But I'm also deeply suspicious with the basic claim that anybody should be restricted about writing about something else on the basis of their race. Because first of all, that's just one very small facet of a complicated identity. And so the theorist Kathy Cohen says that there are no single issue politics because nobody's a single issue person right. and i agree with that and i hate reducing people to a singular label of chinese american which itself means so many fraught right. things but aside from you know the the complicated question of of interrogating asian american as a subject i also think this logic of staying in your own lane or being authentic more often than not gets twisted around and used to marginalize or or to pigeonhole and harm marginalized writers more than it does open up opportunities for them. So when you make it a matter of you don't have permission to write about somebody who isn't you, suddenly all we can write is autobiographies, right? Suddenly we're pigeonholed into these boxes of only writing about immigrant trauma, only writing about race, only writing about how difficult it is to be Chinese American. And sometimes I don't want to write about that. Sometimes I just want to write about dragons and magic and... So when we make it about storytelling reduced to a singular facet of your identity, we, you know, we don't look at people as complex storytellers with the ability to imagine outside of your own perspectives, to step into somebody else's shoes, to attempt something creative. We make it all about this very shoddy, basic form of identity politics that I find incredibly restricting, so... I don't truck with that version of permission. No, I get it, I get
0: it. Alexander Chi actually has a really good line. I'm going to steal it. He's an old pal, and I'm going to steal a line from him, which is, why do you want to tell that story, right? Like, why do you want to step into that particular community? Why do you want to step into that particular person's, what are you gaining, and what does the story gain, right? And I think that's a really legitimate way. I did some math. This morning, and my book selling career is a little bit older than Rebecca. So I've been in a position of seeing these waves, right? Like, this is for a lot of you guys, I'm looking at am like, for a lot of you guys, the weeks that came after 20, the summer of 2020, this feels new, right? That publishers were coming out and saying, we're going to change. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. It's happened before, and momentum has been lost before and I'm not pointing fingers, I'm just telling you what the history was, right? Because, I mean, I walk around in the world with this face, right? One of the things that I love about Yellow Face, and one of the things that I think is so great, is that you've talked about living with June as a character in your head for a while, but neither Athena nor June is perfect, and it does go back to what you just said, right? Like, we don't want to be in box, none of us wants to be in a box, right? Like, there are Southern writers who are like, please don't make me write about grits. <laughs> no, no, ser- I, right? Like, we all have a thing, right? Like, we, we're we from New York, people have assumptions about what you're gonna put in a New York novel, right? And some of us are like, oh yeah, no. No, 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 no. And I was talking to Emma Klein a couple weeks ago, and she has this great line, and she says she stole it from someone else, but about trauma math and not including trauma math. And trauma math is not something that has happened in your earlier books, right? The Poppy War trilogy, Babel, like, those are entire worlds unto themselves. And yet there's some stuff that happens in this book, and we are going spoiler free, right? Because I don't think all of you have had a chance to read this book yet. But you kind of needed that to move the story forward, right? So here you are juggling these two women. Yeah, they're kind of frenemies, but they're also, they're not that dissimilar. So how do you build this world without writing a polemic.
1: Well, so the important thing to understand about Athena, the Chinese-American writer who's successful, who dies and has her work stolen, is that she's very far from this poor, innocent, diverse victim who is angelicized throughout the rest of the book. And I'll try not to get into too many details about the ways in which she is awful, but I wanted to do a couple things with her. The Mm -hmm. first is... I want to trouble the idea that any representation is good representation. Yep. I think there's a lot of frustration in Asian-American circles about being told to to appreciate the crumbs you've been given, right? There's one or two very high-profile Asian-American celebrities, and because they're there, then we have to stand them, we're not allowed to criticize them, and to do so would be a blow against your own community. And I want to think about, on the flip side to people, who do accrue a lot of cultural clout and who are seen as representatives of the Asian American community and are in these positions of great responsibility and act almost as cultural brokers. Part of the reason why they are in that position of massive influence is because white tastemakers view them as people who can explain Asians to them. Mm -hmm. And Athena occupies this spot, and she's very happy with it. She's happy with being the only Asian American in the room, she's happy with being a token. And this in turn has made her rather than happy to send the ladder back down and and help her peers, it's made her jealous and paranoid and very antagonistic, especially to younger Asian American writers who are trying to come up and ask her for guidance. She hates that because Mm -hmm. the moment somebody else is there in the room getting those same opportunities, she's not special anymore. And we see this in the community all the time, and it's not specific to Asian-Americans either. And I want to think about what bad representation looks Mm -hmm. like. And I want to ask questions about how we can do more for ourselves as a community, what solidarity and mutual support looks like, rather than viewing anybody else's success as a sign that your own window is closing. Because I think Mm -hmm. that's a mindset, not just prevalent in marginalized communities, Mm -hmm. but in every creative industry. And the second thing I want to do with Athena, and this is where I have to mince around a spoiler, is I do want to disambiguate the idea of stealing somebody else's life experience for your own work from the question of race. So when June is stealing Athena's manuscript, it's easy to reach for the argument that that was racist because June is white and Athena is Asian. But then Athena turns around and does very similar things to, to all sorts of other people. And then it's a question of, well, was that racist? And if it's not racist, what, what is it? Do we still think it's unethical? Where do we draw the boundaries between what you can take from somebody else's life experience and using your own work? And in a lot of respects, Athena's just as bad as June. But because she's Asian, it's, it's easy to say that what she does is okay. And I want to trouble the very naive and basic concepts of white girl does this so it's wrong, you know, Asian girl does this, so it's fine.
0: So I wanna drop in a couple of questions from the audience. So Mabel's wondering, of all the characters that you've written about, which do you connect with or feel the most proud of creating? And I suspect our women are part of that. They may not be the only ones, but.
1: This question is hard because I try to put a little fragment of my soul into every single character I write. And they all represent a part of me, whether that's a part that I'm proud of or ashamed of. And I put a lot of my shames and fears and nightmares into June and Athena. But characters who I might actually want to sit down at a pub with um, include Rin and Robin. And I think right now, Robin feels closer to me than, than anybody else I've written. But I'm Even also, still? Okay. Yeah. Even still? It's partly because I'm still in the Academy and I'm still dealing with the issues that he thinks about all the time. And like me, Robin is this this nerd who internalizes things a lot more than he impulsively acts on them. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason why writing Rin was so fun is because she does all the things that I would never dare to do. If somebody insults mm-hmm. her teacher, she just punches them in the face. And I'm like, well, how do you form a fist? I'm afraid of hurting my knuckles if I punch you. So I'm just going to step away from this conversation. that stays Robin. out.
0: Thumb, thumb, thumb on out. the outside. Okay, don't <laughs> ever put your... Okay, sorry. Okay, that I know. Don't break your thumb. Um, <laughs> okay, but who gave you the most trouble of all the characters you've created?
1: It's a character in a book that isn't out yet. So okay, I'm wondering fair. how much to say. Okay, wait, 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 wait.
0: No, no, I'm... I'm okay, we, we will get to what's next after we have... <laughs> you guys... <laughs> wait. <laughs> all right. I want to go back to this idea, though, of code switching, which is part of this book. It's it's part of Athena's story, but it's code switching is in there, right? And it's something that a lot of us do on a regular basis. And I wanna talk about how that relates to your work as a translator. We had a couple of questions from folks who were like, how do you balance the translation stuff? And what if you get translator's block and all these things? And I love that line from Babel where you're talking about how you can use translation maybe not for good, right? Like you can manipulate a situation by your choice of words. And I feel like this runs through everything you've done. It's just a little more at the front of everything with yellow face. So how does that feel for you?
1: Okay, I am like doing dissertation research on translation and code switching Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. So I'm just trying to shrink all of this into a shorter answer. I have some disparate thoughts and stories that I'll try to connect at the end. Mm -hmm. And the first is, I have a very adaptable English accent because I learned English as a second language, and now it's become my first language, and I'm more comfortable in it than Chinese, but the, the way I speak tends to mirror the the accent of people around me. So when I go to the UK, I don't speak the way an American pretending to have a British accent speaks because (laughs) I find that deeply obnoxious. But if it's a word that I don't normally use and I hear it a lot in a seminar like leisure, my fiancé really likes to make fun of me for for saying leisure instead of leisure. And so part of this is when I'm in the South, I grew up in Texas. I speak in quite a pronounced Southern accent because I went to high school in Dallas and I say y'all a lot. Y'all is a good word. Y'all's a great word. It's useful. Um, And you know, there's this draw and I picked it up in elementary school and my immigrant parents, this was so hilarious that their dinner party trick you know because they were the sort of chinese-american parents who'd have all the other chinese families in the neighborhood come over for for dinner and we'd be forced to entertain the kids upstairs but they would bring me and my little sister downstairs and request that we recite the pledge of allegiance in a texan accent and this i mean i'm not going to do it now because it's just very weird emotions associated with that but the the upshot of this is I think it's reflecting just trying to blend in with your environment and sound like everybody else around you Mm -hmm. and this can be a good thing right like oftentimes code switching is just a way to protect yourself or or not to stand out but you have to start thinking very critically and reflexively about this when you translate Because then it's not just an issue of your own voice being adapted for your audience, but how you're adapting somebody else's voice. And I translate quite a lot of Chinese science fiction short stories Mm -hmm. into English. And my impulse when I started translating was to make it read in English the way I would have written it, which is to say very smooth, as if written by a native Mm -hmm. English speaker. You know, for some reason, I thought my goal as a translator should be to translate it so well that somebody reading it would not assume it was a translation. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to change all the colloquialisms, the slang, the metaphors, etc., to things that would be readily accessible to an Anglophone audience. And this is coming from a theory of the invisible translator, you know, the Mm -hmm. translator who does their job so well that the switch between languages feels seamless. Now, the problem with that is that you then smooth over a lot of the very interesting things about Chinese that then get lost in translation and the reader never knows about. And there are all these theories of translation that argue, rather, you should translate in a way that makes it very obvious what the source language was and Mm -hmm. doesn't elide those tricky moments, but stretches English and is willing to add to your repertoire of how you're composing sentence to make it clear to the reader what was going on in the original. And there are arguments that this is more faithful, more authentic to the original text. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's a difficult balance as well, because you don't want to write something that feels so clunky that the reader assumes the original writer was mm-hmm. was just not very good at prose. So you're you're juggling all of these things, right? You want a story to be accessible. You also want it to retain its Chineseness, whatever that is. And you also want to negotiate how much of yourself you're putting in a story. And I don't have all the answers to this, Mm -hmm. which is why it demands continued research. But the thing I've realized is that code switching in the case of translation is something you have to be very careful about. Mm -hmm. Otherwise you just fall into the trap of translating to make a story seem Western when it's not.
0: Do you feel like you're still translating yourself for an audience now that yellow is out in the world? This is a really different book for you.
1: This is a loaded question because it's also about authorial intent and Mm -hmm. reader interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I will get to that. First, I took a seminar on Freud and Lacan last (laughs) semester. So I've become one of those annoying psychoanalysis Mm -hmm. bros who's like, oh, we are all constantly constituting ourselves as subjects and we're all translating ourselves. And that's what it means to take part of a symbolic order and to be a social being. But... I do think even if you only have English, right, everybody is constantly trying to translate themselves and get their meaning across to somebody else and just hoping that somebody hears and understands you. And sometimes that doesn't work, which is where we get to sometimes you write something and it doesn't land. I remember when Babel was coming out, I don't look at reviews. Sometimes reviews find their way to me, and I get irritated about it, but people were taking these ridiculous things away from Babel that I never intended or thought I had made clear the opposite in the text, and and at first I was very frustrated by this, but then I realized a better strategy to deal with readers interpreting your work in ways you didn't intend is to pretend that you're dead. Uh, <laughs> And not that you're literally dead, but to lean into the author is dead theory, um, which, you know, I don't believe in all the way, but I do think at some point you just have to let go and you can't control interpretation Mm -hmm. of your work because the making of meaning is a two-way street and and you put what you want in the text and then the reader connects with it and that's how the, the story materializes in their minds. And I've, you know, composed the text in a way that I liked. And you can do whatever you want with it. You know, Mm -hmm. metaphorically, I'm dead. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to argue with anybody's interpretation of the text because
0: then the text isn't standing on its own. Part of what I was thinking while I was reading this book was, do the people who really need the story the most, are they going to get it? Are they going to understand that they are a piece of this? Or are they just going to think, it's a really nice novel. And I read a, you know, a nifty story about the dolts in publishing kind of thing. You know, I just, I I wonder sometimes we put all of this work out into the world and I'm like, "Mm," it feels like it flies over some people's heads sometimes.
1: Yeah, but they've still spent the $30. So I'm like true, (laughs) crying my way to the bank. Um, I actually, I've thought about this a lot. I used to worry a lot that theories of the transformative power of literature were overblown and I'd have all these conversations with one of my good friends and I'd say, you know, it it doesn't feel like the people whose na- minds need to be changed by our work are ever going to pick up our work and if they do, how are they going mm-hmm. to interpret it and it doesn't, you know, we've been telling stories for centuries and the world is where it is. So what is the point? It feels like just preaching to the choir. And he said, you know, that's fine. Sometimes you have to rev up your congregation. Mm-hmm. So I've shifted my attitude towards writing in the past few years from thinking that I can magically change the world or get through to people who fundamentally disagree with me on on everything. Mm -hmm. And I think more about the very modest goal of just articulating how I'm feeling and hoping that that helps somebody else understand how they're feeling. And it's a shared experience between people who are going through some of the, some very painful things together. And that might be enough just to know that you're not alone and somebody else Mm -hmm. feels this way too.
0: We have a really interesting question from the audience and I'm gonna say thank you, whoever wrote this. How do you feel about white people at your events, including this one? Is there a way for white folks and other people in privileged positions to engage with your work ethically? The ethically is really interesting word choice.
1: Pay full price and tell your friends to buy the book too. Again, I just, I mean, very basic forms of identity politics, right? Like, if you're a white person, then you should not be in this audience. You should not read this book. You should not talk about it. You should not write about characters of color. Nobody has patience for that. Nobody has time for that, right? The only way we move past whatever cultural moment we're in is if we're all talking to each other. Mm -hmm. So please feel welcome in this space. Do buy the book, though.
0: (laughs) You may have noticed a theme. (laughs) So, as a woman of color in a white male-dominated genre fantasy, I don't know if litfic is dominated by white men, but if you want to have that conversation with me later, we can. How do you center your perspective? Do you have advice for writers of color who want to do the same?
1: I guess the first thing would be, don't feel pressured to use your initials on the cover of your novels. That was the main advice I got when I first started writing, everybody said oh, fantasy is dominated by white men. It's easier if they can't tell what gender you are when you pick up the book. So I thought, well, RF sounds pretty badass. I'll go with that. And I never thought I was really fooling anybody. It's quite obvious who I am. I'm very visible on the internet, and they print the author photo on the book. So, you know, it's, it's not like a surprise. And I didn't really think I was getting away with much until uh, this event I did a few months ago in Ohio. And this very sweet white lady came up to me and and had not read any of my work. She saw the books. She saw RF Kuang. And then she looked at me and she said, you're not RF Kuang. And I said, "Um, no, I I am. And she said, no, that's a man's name, RF. You can't be RF Kuang. And I was like, oh, oh my God. (laughs) I fooled someone. And then her, her friend, this other very sweet white lady, came up next to her and she said, Look at her, does she look like an RF Quang? And her friend, I can, she's like the lady in that meme with the triangles. I can see her <laughs> trying to work through all the attendant issues of racialization and gender and whatever's going on here. And she's just like, well, If she says she is, maybe she is. But I don't think she ever quite believed me. On a more serious note, I feel incredibly lucky in that there were enough examples of people who look like me in the genre that when I was getting into fantasy, I didn't feel like I was at a significant disadvantage. And when I look back, it's remarkable because you can count those first movers on one hand. So it was because Ken Liu published The Grace of Kings Mm -hmm. in a few years before the popular came out or was even drafted that I, I thought it was even possible for a Chinese American author to publish a fantasy novel with a big five publisher. And then shortly before the popular came out, Fonda Lee's Jade city came out, which is wonderful. And just having Fonda and Ken were enough. Having seen them succeed, Mm -hmm. knowing people liked their books, knowing that they were being read and being supported made me feel like I could do it. And People toss around the term, like, we're in a golden age of diverse sci-fi fantasy a lot. I think that's a little preemptive because you look at the numbers and, you know, it's a stretch to say golden age, but it is this cool incipient period where there are just enough first movers in this genre that you have somebody else to turn to and look as an example and inspire you, so... That's how I've gotten through, even though, you know, looking back, it was just those two. And if they hadn't been there, I don't know if Mm -hmm. I even would have started writing.
0: There's more progress than there's been. And sometimes progress is what you have. And uh, it's not perfect. But lots of folks, too. And you and I have sort of talked about this in the past, because each, like, Poppy War sort of went hand in hand with your undergrad work, and Babel went more with your grad work, and certainly Yellow Face is just your life. How do you balance academia? I mean, you're getting a PhD, and this is your fifth book. I mean, you are allowed to slow down, you know. (laughs) But seriously, how do you you balance the two? I
1: am slowing down, and I have to slow down now because PhD work is getting harder, and I'm also teaching now, and I wasn't teaching before teaching takes a lot of time, mm-hmm. office hours, grading, <laughs> preparing for lecture. So I find it tougher now to draft during the semester than, mm-hmm. than it was when I was just taking classes. And I was going to have a fantasy novel come out next year. And we pushed it to 2025 for a bunch of reasons. It's called Catabasis. I hope we have a moment to talk about it. But next year I'm studying and hopefully passing my qualifying exams. And that means mastery over around 180 texts. And Mm. I'm also getting married next June.
0: Congratulations.
1: And like, frankly, I want time to enjoy my honeymoon and not be on tour and and not look at my phone for weeks. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to recharge. I have to become a different person to write every new project. And if you're just spinning the wheels, doing the same work, and constantly in the publishing grind, then you're not having that time off to absorb life experiences, absorb stories, think about new new ideas, and I'm looking forward to that time to become a different author who's worthy of publishing the work that comes next. But Katabasis is almost done, and it is coming out in 2025. And I promise
0: we're coming back to it. I promise, I promise, I promise we're coming back to Katabasis, but you guys had a lot of questions, and I'm sharing the stage with you. So. Okay, as an Asian American who did not do the consulting, accounting, science thing, my parents were thrilled. Oh, <laughs> someday I'll tell that story. Did you face any difficulties from your family as an Asian American pursuing a writing career? Did they want you to have a more, quote, traditional career in STEM?
1: Well, I'm still trying to become a professor, so yeah, they have that to hold on to. <sighs> I have actually always been so supported by my parents and especially by my father. We're very close. Mm -hmm. And his whole thing is that he went to college to study physics and then did his graduate work in physics in the States and has always been a STEM person and Mm -hmm. was very disappointed when I turned out to be quite bad at math. Um, (laughs) But he's had this lifelong love of literature and history, and when he was in college, he begged them to let him change majors but because the way he tested in was by getting a very high score on on the math and physics and science exam you know they didn't mm. let him outside of his department so i think there's a part of him that that feels like his unrealized dreams are coming true through me which you know has nothing to do with immigrant trauma and therapy and all sorts of weird family issues so so that's been wonderful and he's never tried to push mm-hmm. me towards medicine or law. My mother, on the other hand, likes to visit and remind me that it's never too late to become a computer science major. And, oh. you know, she's just living in her own yeah, reality. I, I love it. her very much. Yeah.
0: We have a question about footnotes from Babel, but I want to own up to the fact that I bought three books based on your annotation at the end of Yellowface. So in your b edition, there is a really, really useful... Annotated bibliography and so and I had to write them down because I did actually I'm pretty Well read in Asian America, and I had not heard of these so I bought them in New York before Chinatown immigrant acts and double agency So that's me pointing you to the end of it before I go to someone's question about footnotes in Babel What was your thought process behind the footnotes in Babel? I thought at first that they were based solely on historical facts before realizing that some of the footnotes were alternate history Was this done on purpose?
1: I love footnotes in fiction. Mm-hmm. I also love footnotes in academic papers because I find they're a great way to cheat. Because I always want to go on these tangents and talk about other random unrelated stuff. And my professors always like, you know, stay on topic. But if you push <laughs> it to a footnote, suddenly it's attractive. The other problem I have is, I think because I am doing research at the same time that I'm writing fiction, I have this tendency to go overboard with exposition, and this is a problem with the popular trilogy. I remember particularly with the Dragon Republic, there's a scene where, because I'm very bad at geography, I had accidentally made the Dragon Province landlocked, and their whole thing is that they have a very strong navy, and I didn't notice this until I went back and looked at the map, and I was like, oh, I don't know what to do with that. And what I ended up deciding was they were going to have an incredible canal system. And this would be linked to, like, how they irrigated the province and, and they'd have these giant ships that, with rivers that the ships could cross. So it started off as me defending my bad geography and turned into an interesting research project into irrigation, irrigation systems and canals during the Song Dynasty. And I wrote pages and pages of this. And David, my editor, just highlighted it all and was like, nobody cares. Um, so we had to take it out and there's only, like, a couple paragraphs in there now. But the nice thing about Babel is that it just all went into the footnotes, so nobody could edit me based on pacing anymore. But there's something else going on Mm -hmm. in Babel, and it's not just that I like to throw information at you and I don't like to be edited. I love the idea of the voice of the footnotes acting as a second narrator, because Mm -hmm. the interesting thing about a lot of Victorian fiction is it doesn't hew to the consistent POV that we're used to in contemporary fiction, where you know, it's either limited third, you're in some person's head the entire time, you don't have information that other characters have or like close first person, et cetera. The narrator of a lot of Victorian fiction, I mean, Dickens does this a lot, he jumps between people's heads. You get multiple perspectives on a single scene and, and that's just not very common anymore, right. I don't know why. But I played with that second voice by putting somebody in the footnotes who's situated differently in, in space and time mm. from Robin, the main character. Because Robin is very naive and he starts the book with a very skewed perspective on the world and it's widening near the end. But there's a lot of things he doesn't know. For instance, he's a raging misogynist, not out of aggression or hatred towards women, but he just doesn't really care for them or understand them. So there's a lot about the discrimination that women faced in the 1830s that Robin just doesn't have access to and, and isn't trying to get. But you have this pretty feminine voice of the footnotes who's always there offering a secondary perspective to what Robin thinks. And I like to think of her as somebody writing um, about 100 years later, somebody who is doing that arcane history, looking back and explaining what Robin's missed out on and offering some some gentle counter arguments. And mm-hmm. you know, having that conflicting perspective is really fun for me.
0: And it also sets up this audience question really well. Within Babel, you're clearly playing with slippages across languages, areas in which the gap between things is more interesting than the two subjects themselves. Are there other forms of the slippages or losses in translation that interest you besides language itself? Might this manifest in explorations with medium, form, etc.? What other gaps are you thinking about?
1: Did my professor write this? Like I feel like I'm like,
0: Does anyone want to own that orals question? Orals right now. There we go. Hello. Okay.
1: Okay, I love the question of slippage. I guess one form of translation I'm thinking a lot about right now is the translation from text to the screen, because everybody likes to ask me what's happening with various adaptations, and I'm not allowed to say, and there's also a writer's strike going on for them, so we're not allowed to announce very much. And I have been asked so many questions in meetings, you know, what do you want in an adaptation? Do you need something to be very faithful to every beat of the story? How would you feel if we change certain things? There are so many questions about how possibly to adapt to Babel, especially to the screen, because it's not a book that immediately makes sense as an adaptation. I actually, in a lot of meetings, I took the first question I would ask the producer was, why on earth do you want to adapt this? It's unadaptable. Why do you think it makes a good story? And, and I really picked somebody based on their answer. And so, first of all, I don't believe that every story needs to be adapted to the screen. I think that some stories are just better as written text, and this assumption that, you know, the final form, the mm-hmm. the natural yeah. theological progression of a form of story is like a second-rate Netflix adaptation doesn't make a lot of sense to me, and... So there's some stories of mine that I just don't ever want to see um, Mm -hmm. as a series and that's fine. The other thing I'm thinking about is I just don't want to be that involved in any possible adaptation of Babel or Yellow Face or anything that follows because I'm not a screenwriter and I don't think about story in that way. I like it to consume it in that way, but Mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in finding a team that is creative and smart and interesting enough to turn it into their own version that doesn't have to be faithful. It can just be inspired by the text so that watching the film or the TV show would feel like an addition to the conversation. And I think one adaptation that does this really well in a way that I'm still thinking about is The Green Knight that came out in 2021 because I read the translation of the old English poem before we saw it. And they're two very different stories, but they act like mirror halves and it's so smart. And that's not an adaptation you can do if all you're thinking about is translating key moments of the text into like fan service gifs for people to share on Tumblr. So I want people to think more about untranslatability and thinking of the, that leap not as slippage, but as a moment of productivity and something that frees you rather than shackles mm-hmm. you to the text.
0: Okay, before we get back to Catabasis, because I promised... Please help settle this debate. When you read, do you prefer to keep your books clean and pristine, or do you do it my way, which is to destroy everything? Uh, Or do you uh, scribble notes and dog-ear your pages?
1: Yeah, nobody has time for keeping a book clean. (laughs) I read in the bath. I like to mark up my books. One very sexy thing that my fiancé and I do is I'll borrow his copy of Aristotle, and he'll have annotated it in blue ink, and then all annotated in green ink, and then we can see our blue and green notes next to each other.
0: Nerd babies. I think it's awesome. All right, catabasis, because I've been teasing this. We have been teasing this for a little bit now. What's the deal?
1: Okay, speaking of nerds in love, catabasis. <laughs> um, well, the the very basic premise is two magicians who are PhD students studying magic who journey to hell to rescue the soul of their dead advisor who died in a freak magical accident so that he can come back and write them recommendation letters so that they can get jobs on the right? vanishingly um, small opportunity to, you know, magical <laughs> tenure track economy. So on the face of it, it's this fun, playful satire of the academy, and it's just really leaning into the statement, doing a PhD as hell. But as I started writing it, I realized that it was really about abuse within the academy. I'm really interested in the teacher-student relationship and the advantage that people in positions of power, especially in PhD programs where one person can destroy your entire career, ruin your life if you don't, please them at every turn, and I'm interested in what those sins look like and how they would be punished in hell. The other thing I'm thinking about is logic paradoxes, and especially Mm -hmm. paradoxes of rational choice. And there are all these paradoxes about how you can make a series of decisions that seem like you're making yourself better off with each stage, but end up in a worse position, which, again, is a good metaphor for deciding to do a PhD. And the fun thing about this is that this is the first book I've written that isn't within one of my academic subfields. I don't do philosophy or logic. Uh, my fiancé does, which means that I'm always the most popular person at MIT department parties because I go around asking people, will you explain Frege to me? And the people who are studying Frege are like, oh my God, (laughs) you want me to tell you? Sit down, I'll tell you everything. So it feels like this really fun collaboration between me and my fiance and I'm learning what he's learning and thinking in the, the ways that he views the world. So it really is my first romance novel. Although to be very clear, it doesn't hit a lot of the tropes that you expect from the romance genre. So let's not call it that. But it's the first novel that's written primarily out of love.
0: And on that note, I would love to have all of you get your books signed, but before we do that, couple of things. If you have not, it's AAPI month, right? It's our month. If you have not read Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar, I'm gonna say you might if Yellowface is your thing and you tear through it in two nights, which you will. Who needs dinner, who needs to do the dishes? Just read the book. Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar, who also has a Pulitzer for the play Disgraced. You have heard his name before. And also, Disorientation by Elaine Shea Chow. Because if yellowface is your thing, you are going to need something until 2025. Is that what you say? Okay, I'm just looking out for my people, okay? I'm just looking out for you so you have more stuff to read. Anyway, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. This is so fun. I'm always really happy to see you. This was great. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.